Welcome back to the Diet Doctor podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Schur. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Angela Poff. Now, Angela is a research associate in the Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology in the University of South Florida. And she's working in the same lab as Dr. Dominic Diagostino, but she's really she's really flourished in her own right and has sort of taken over the cancer side of that lab, looking at nutritional interventions uh, for cancer. And it, it's a really exciting field because when you think about it, how prevalent cancer is, pretty much everybody has been touched by cancer either personally or by a loved one. And cancer therapies, although you can say we've progressed, we probably haven't progressed as quickly as many people would have hoped with this sort of genetic basis of cancer. Well, now there's this resurgence of this whole other concept of the metabolic basis of cancer. And how can we treat metabolic disease? With diet, with nutrition, and specifically with a ketogenic diet and maybe even exogenous ketones. Now, there's a lot of excitement about this field, but as you'll hear um, Dr. Poff and I discuss, it's still a lot of preclinical evidence, which puts us in a bit of a tough balancing act of how strongly to promote this because people want a cure. People want something to help. They'll latch on to anything. And if we have something that can help them, we should be promoting it. But does the strength of the evidence support the strength of the recommendation? So we do have to be a little bit careful when we talk about nutritional therapies for cancer. They play a role for cancer therapy and for helping the patient, but exactly how strong can our recommendation be? And I think that'll be an important um, important take home from this discussion with, with Dr. Angela Poff. She's got a ton of knowledge. She's done a lot of experiments on this uh, in this field. So I hope you enjoy this and, and really come away with a few nuggets of what it means for nutritional therapy, for cancer therapy, what the state of the evidence is now, and maybe how can you take some of this either personally or to help a loved one uh, who's maybe suffering with cancer. So enjoy this interview with Dr. Angela Poff. Dr. Angela Poff, thank you so much for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast. Absolutely. Very happy to be here. So here we are at the fourth annual Metabolic Summit, or Metabolic Health Summit, yeah. which you mm-hmm. are one of the organizers of. Mm-hmm. And this is a fantastic event. Um, and you and Dr. Dominic Diagostino are like the the power organizers, and you happen to be in the same lab at, at yes. the University of South Florida, yes. where you are a research associate. And mm-hmm. how did you get lucky enough to stumble into his lab and be able to work with him? <laughs> yeah, you know, um, it, so I, I joined uh, Dominic's lab about a decade ago. Um, as I was finishing up my undergraduate work, I knew that I wanted to be a scientist. It was kind of the only thing I ever wanted to be um, since I was young. And so I knew that I wanted to do research. I went um, straight into a PhD program after my undergraduate. And kind of how these programs work, you typically um, show up at uh, the, the university and you enter into kind of like an umbrella program where they have a lot of different departments under the program. And then you meet with all the professors and you learn about what kind of research they're doing. And then you choose one to do your doctoral thesis with. Yeah. And so... Um, at that time, uh, Dominic had just transitioned into a faculty position at University of South Florida. And so he was um, wanting to start up his own lab. And at that time, he was doing mostly uh, neuroscience research. So um, he had been funded by the Navy to look at mitigation strategies for central nervous system oxygen toxicity seizures. And um as we know, ketosis is a potential, you know, is a therapy for seizures. And that was an application that he was studying. My headset is kind of falling off. Sorry about that. That's okay. Just it as you need to. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <clears throat> but he had um, some interest in the cancer field. So uh, I remember he was presenting about his lab and uh, where he was wanting to go with it. And most of the talk was on the neuroscience side. And then I think the very end, he had like this one slide about I really want to uh, talk, think about this diet for cancer. And I just remember like in that moment, my whole like kind of mindset shifting because I never thought, I knew that diet and nutrition was important for like prevention of disease and maintaining health, but I never kind of viewed it as a tool to actually potentially treat disease, especially for something so severe and complicated as cancer. Um, right. 
And it just really intrigued me. And so I met, um, I went and met with him and just hit it off. He's such a kind person, such a, a genuine person and, and so smart. And so I decided, yeah, I'd love to join your lab. And so at that time it was literally me and him. <laughs> so oh, wow. uh, yeah, um, and we kind of uh, hit the, the ground running on getting that cancer uh, research aspect up in his laboratory. And so that's kind of, um, since then, I've kind of spearheaded the cancer program in Dominic's lab, and uh, he kind of spearheads the neuroscience side of the lab. And um, a decade later, you know, we still work together in that kind of setup, and it's been great. We have a lot of students and people in the lab working on various projects. It's really expanded since those days. So yeah. I was, it was completely by chance. I was totally lucky um, to, to end up at that program and to meet Dom. Well, that sounds really interesting. So it was more sort of the nutritional intervention for cancer and not mm -hmm. so much the ketones in the beginning yeah. that brought you in. And Absolutely. Then, yeah. And then the ketone part is sort of built up from there. And I don't mean, it almost sounds like selling you short to say you're in his lab because you've been oh. so prolific on your own and have <laughs> sure. so many publications and have done so much to, to um, advance this field of nutrition therapy for cancer. And I, I love when I read about kind of what you're interested in and it's non-toxic metabolic targeted therapies for cancer. And just yeah. that statement says so much in yeah. that statement. One, non-toxic. Why? Because so many of our cancer treatments are toxic. Absolutely. Wouldn't that be wonderful if we could find something that's non-toxic? And yes. then the second part, metabolic targeted therapies. So that's a part I want to unpack a little bit because yeah. when I was going through medical school and residency, it was sort of this genetic boom of mm -hmm. the genetic cause of cancer. And it almost seems like it's a quote unquote new revelation <laughs> that actually it's a metabolic, that cancer also has this metabolic aspect. Yes. But in truth, there's nothing new about it, is there? No, there's really not. It's, you know, it's something that we've known for a very long time about cancer, that it has this metabolic face to it, that um, you know, it was probably one of the first things we truly knew about um, some of the mechanisms that are happening in a cancer cell, what sets a cancer cell apart from a normal healthy cell. And so uh, Dr. Oda Warburg, which is a, a German um, biochemist in the early 20th century, had done research looking at the metabolism of cancer cells and found that they were very different than uh, a normal cell of the same tissue type in that they preferentially will utilize large amounts of glucose metabolism and they don't rely as much on oxygen, oxidative phosphorylation and oxidative metabolism uh, to fuel their growth. And yeah, So is, even in the presence of oxygen, yes. the cancer cells prefer to use an anaerobic um, yes. metabolism that doesn't use oxygen, even though there's plenty of oxygen around. Yes, exactly. And so they do have, they do both. Um, and the degree to which they do both varies by cancer type. So sometimes in this conversation, um, it can become, it's difficult when we talk about cancer because there's a lot of nuance that has to be provided and not we don't always have the time to provide that kind of nuance. Um, but they, they're not fully um, glycolytic. They definitely do retain some level of oxidative metabolism and some cancer types more so than others. But it's almost a universal um, feature of cancers that there's heightened glycolytic metabolism. And the more aggressive the tumor is, the more metastatic it becomes, that feature exacerbates even further. Um, so much so that this is actually a diagnostic uh, tool. It's the basis of a diagnostic tool, the FDG PET scan. Um, that is basically just radioactively labeled sugar um, and the patient consumes this and then the tumors take up the glucose, the sugar, at such high rates that it will visualize then on this PET scan. Um, right, so it's not that other cells aren't taking up the glucose, exactly. it's just that the cancer cell is taking it up by such a greater degree yes. that they just light up in, in comparison to yes. the normal cells. Exactly, okay. that's the case. Yeah, so now you said there's a lot of nuance here. And, yes. you know, we throw the term cancer out there, like cancer yeah. is one thing. Right. And there is, you know, bloodborne cancers, there are solid tissue cancers, and even the solid tissue cancers are different, and then there are different stages. So mm. absolutely, we can't talk about cancer in one thing. But when we talk about the metabolic versus genetic mm. aspect of cancer, 
I mean, is it one or the other, right? Is it it's either metabolic or it's genetic or is there... They are completely both, right? inseparable. Yeah. So um, Dr. Adrienne Scheck, uh, in her presentation, she likes to show these uh, an image of these uh, spools of yarn. And um, she'll show like a spool of yarn that says the genetic features of cancer and, and another one that says the med- metabolic features of cancer. And then she says, in reality, this is what it looks like. And it's a bunch of kittens playing with yeah. both spools. It's complete chaos. And that's 100% true. So the same genes that we know of as being heavily mutated in cancer that are uh, stimulating, you know, cell proliferation, um, inhibiting apoptosis, all of these things that we think of as being those fundamental genetic kind of features of cancer, they also control metabolism. So you can't even really separate them. And a lot of these genes, um, when they're mutated in the ways that are typically seen in cancers, uh, you end up with this more glycolytic metabolic phenotype. So the glycolytic anaerobic phenotype of cancer is actually something that we see in proliferating cells in general. So stem cells, for example, have a more glycolytic phenotype typically because they're uh, proliferating. So it's, um, it's also just an, a natural feature of a, a rapidly proliferating cell to do this. And there's some important reasons for that. Um, kind of the biggest idea is that glycolytic metabolism, if you're not fully oxidizing these substrates through the respiratory chain and completely losing carbons to CO2 production, you can actually shunt those carbons towards biomass synthesis. So this is actually uh, the idea, there's kind of a this two um, competing theories on why tumors are glycolytic. Um, and I think it's true that both sides of the coin are, are, are kind of true. So essentially this glycolytic phenotype allows these carbons to be preserved and instead of being fully oxidized, you get to package, repackage them into new lipids, new proteins, new DNA, which if you're a growing tumor, you have to have to be able to grow, right? Especially when you're growing that quickly. Yes, exactly. Um, The other side is the argument that this glycolytic phenotype is a consequence of mitochondrial respiratory insufficiency and that they are glycolytic because they have to be because the mitochondria are damaged. Right. There's evidence for both. Um, And I think both are probably contributing. And depending on the cancer, you know, one is maybe more more contributing to one type of cancer versus the other. Yeah, and and I've heard you actually say this before in some of your talks that when you talk about genetic mutations for cancer, it doesn't mean that every single one of those cancer cells has the same genetic mutation, which is something I hadn't really thought of before, but kind of makes sense mm-hmm. that you can have different mutations. So if you use one of these gene-targeted therapies, you may be getting the majority of the tumor cells, but not all of them. But if you focus on the metabolic side as well, chances are you're getting practically all of them. Would you say all of them? I wouldn't say all of them, for sure. So we know that different, and even different, this is what makes cancer such a beast. (laughs) Um, We know that different regions of the tumor um, show different types of genetic mutations. Some are more oxidative, some are more glycolytic than the other regions of the tumor. Uh, This is also related to the oxygenation status of that region of the tumor. So another area of cancer metabolism that we target in the lab, um, in the hyperbaric lab that that, uh, I work in at University of South Florida, is targeting the, um, the hypoxia that's present in tumors. So as tumors grow, they have to form new vasculature to provide blood to that new area of the tumor. But they're doing this, the angiogenesis that's stimulating these new blood vessels to grow is happening under the direction of these mutated gene pathways. So it's not a normal process. And these vast, these vessels that form are insufficient, they're immature, they have leaks, they have holes in the walls. And so and they can't keep up sometimes with the growing tumor. So throughout the entire tumor, you have everything from complete anoxia sometimes. Lack of oxygen. Yes, complete lack of oxygen in the core of the tumor where perhaps there's just no, you know, blood vessels that are close enough to be able to get oxygen to that region. 
and then a gradient of hypoxia, depending on how close you get to a vessel and what kind of functioning it has, to a fully um, oxygenated region. And the, that level of oxygen also will contribute to the glycolytic versus oxidative capacity of that part of the tumor <laughs> as well. Right. So it, it's quite complicated. Um, and all of these things are kind of converging at once, but it results in this real mixed bag of the tumor. Metabolically, genetically, um, there are regions, subregions throughout the tumor that have different mutations, different metabolic features um, that mean any single targeted therapy is less likely to actually impact the entire tumor. And indeed, that's what we see. This is why most targeted drugs end up with resistance. You may apply a drug that is targeting a mutation that is, even if it's present, in 80% of the cancer cells, you still leave 20% behind. And now there's ample room for those 20% to repopulate. Yeah. And that is, is repopulating from the portion of cells that were resistant to your treatment in the first place. And now the tumor that recurs is resistant to that treatment. Yes, that was a, a, an important statement you made that any one single targeted therapy basically is unlikely to succeed. So. Yeah. To put things in perspective, when people say a ketogenic diet or exogenous ketones may be helpful in cancer yeah. therapy, would you ever recommend them as a solitary cancer therapy? The data does not support that yeah, at all. I think that's important <clears throat> to clarify. So we absolutely. really talk about an adjunctive therapy. Yes, integrative, absolutely. Yeah. And depending, it, it all depends on how important the specific... Um, mechanisms that you're targeting are for that tumor. Even with the ketogenic diet, this is why I think that the ketogenic diet seems to, at least in the preclinical studies where it's mostly been um, studied in cancer, seems to have an anti-cancer effect in a majority of the cancer types that it's been tested in, not all. That's important to know, first of all. Um, but it is influencing many, many things. So unlike a, a targeted um, cancer drug that may be influencing a specific genetic mutation, the ketogenic diet is changing hundreds of metabolic pathways at once. It's also influencing a large number of signaling pathways simultaneously through epigenetic alterations. So I think that the ketogenic diet, because it's influencing so many things at once, that's why we see that at least the preclinical literature suggests it may be effective to some degree in a larger number of cancers. Now, you use this word preclinical, so I think yeah. it's important for us to be very clear Absolutely. about where the evidence lies. And right now, the vast majority mm -hmm. is in mice, is in animal studies with very little human data. Is that an Absolutely. accurate statement? Yes, I would say yeah. that. Um, luckily, there are a number of clinical trials ongoing that seems to be increasing yearly, which is wonderful. I would say there's probably about 20 registered clinical trials right now. Great. Yes, which is excellent. It is uh, difficult to get a diet trial in, well, <laughs> in general, but in cancer especially. And um, for is a part multitude of, that because, of reasons. Is part of that because who's going to pay for it because nobody is going to sort of make <laughs> money off of a dietary trial? Or is part of it um, just because of resistance from IRBs that know, you know, we need to focus on drugs because they're more effective than diet, like that type of philosophy. All of the above. Yeah. Um, the under, our understanding and appreciation of the impact of diet on cancer has changed rapidly in the past decade. Anyone that's actually familiar with the literature on, on diet and cancer, I don't think can any longer claim that it makes no impact. Um, so thankfully people are now uh, opening up, but it's kind of a whole, a brave new world, uh, where that's concerned. Um, there are complications. So for one thing, you know, we study in the lab, uh, the effect of cancer cachexia and the effect of diet on cachexia. Cachexia is the wasting that occurs in late stage cancer. So, um, where you'll lose, um, body fat, but most importantly, muscle mass contributes to the morbidity and mortality of patients significantly um, and is even thought to be responsible for mortality in about 20 to 30 percent of cancer patients. Um, so when you're talking about a diet, especially a diet that is publicly used to lose weight, in a cancer patient there's a lot of fear there, which is totally fine and understandable. 
um, about how do we cro- how do we walk this line? Right. Um, it's interesting because from our lab's perspective, we understand that the state of ketosis, the metabolic state of ketosis, is actually a muscle preserving state, which goes back to um, being it being necessary to preserve muscle function during fasting or starvation. Um, so there are actual signaling effects of ketones to help maintain muscle during ketosis. Um, but from a clinician's perspective, this is you know so important. And historically, we've we've only kind of the advice has always been eat whatever you can mm-hmm. to keep your body weight up for good reason. I understand that because they know that if a patient with terminal cancer starts losing lots of body weight, that's a very bad prognostic factor. Yeah, um, I remember I remember seeing some handouts <clears throat> that recommended like the Dairy Queen slurry yeah. with the, all the like so much sugar in it, but it was just get whatever you can yeah. in your body, which drives up your sugar, drives up your insulin, insulin mm-hmm. and could potentially fuel tumor growth. But is the ketogenic diet effective simply because you lower glucose and you sort of starve the cells of glucose, or is it more complex than that? Does it's it have to so do with much more complex. insulin itself and the ketone bodies themselves? Like, yeah. How do we better understand the mechanism, and does it really matter? I think so. I think it matters a lot because, for one thing, <clears throat> when we're applying uh, for research grants to study this, people really want to see mechanistic information. We want to know why it's working. Um, <clears throat> the glucose story is scratching the surface of what's actually happening, and that's something I really like to talk about a lot because it kind of gets pushed as this, oh, we're starving cancer of glucose. End of story. And that's really the beginning of the story. So um, glucose levels, of course, do go down um, on a ketogenic diet, not necessarily very significantly, depending on where your baseline was, of course. Um, And that will reduce glucose availability to the tumor. There's human data showing that um, in patients on a ketogenic diet, there's depending on, you know, from these studies, about 20% less glucose being taken up by the tumor. That's going to be tapping the brakes, some on those important proliferative pathways that really thrive on that high glucose flux um, within the tumor. But that's not a starving the tumor of glucose, right? Um, for me, I think perhaps the, at least as important is the insulin story. So as glucose goes down, insulin goes down. Insulin is a very important growth factor for cancer. Many, perhaps most cancers, overexpress insulin receptor, have overactive insulin signaling, which contributes to their growth and proliferation. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think that's a factor that probably isn't talked about nearly as much as it should be, that that insulin as a growth factor. I mean, we know it's a bodybuilders use it as a growth factor for muscle and cancers can use it as a growth factor. Maybe not all cancer types uniformly. Would you say that? Yeah. Yeah. Almost anything you can't say uniformly against cancer, unfortunately. Um, Some tumors are notoriously um, high insulin users. Others, not as much, but the majority definitely do have at least elevated insulin signaling. And then beyond that, you have a host of other um, sequelae from ketone metabolism, either the, the state of being in ketosis or direct signaling effects of ketones themselves that are going to be impacting the tumor as well. So we know that um, ketones serve as histone deacetylase inhibitors. So describe what that is for people who may not know. Yeah, so kind of the easy way to explain that is ketones will physically interact with the DNA in a way that causes certain genes to open up their expression. Tumors take it, they're very smart. (laughs) They take advantage of every opportunity they can to um, put on the gas and take off the brakes when it comes to proliferation and survival um, of these cells. And so they actually silence. We have a host of genes that are inherent or important genes to tell our cells to stop dividing when you shouldn't be dividing. As an adult, not many cells in our body are actively dividing at, a, um, at, at one time. But those genes are still in our, our DNA from when we were growing in development to do that. So cancer finds a way to turn those genes on and to turn off the genes that are the housekeepers saying, 
hey, wait, let's pump the brakes, or there's something wrong with that cell, we need to initiate cell death so that it doesn't become cancerous, for example. And they do this in uh, one mechanism, they do this through mutations, but another way is that they actually epigenetically silence those genes. Um, so literally, the DNA, the chromatin around those genes gets twisted up tighter and tighter um, so that it can't be transcribed and then translated. So um, ketones function to reopen up um, DNA in some important targets that we know cancer might be benefiting from. So um, <clears throat> we actually see that tumors may be, um, that you know, cancer may be inhibited by ketones because the ketones are actually re-expressing these tumor suppressor genes um, simply by a, a signaling mechanism. <clears throat> this has nothing to do with their energy status. So yeah. ketones have two complete faces. They can be burned as energy and make energy, um, ATP, or, you know, they also can just physically interact with other proteins. They bind to cell surface receptors. We're now learning more and more about the receptors that ketones bind to and what, you know, effects happen in the cell downstream of that. And then they also interact with the DNA. They also interact directly with components of our immune system. So there's even data that suggests <clears throat> that that component of ketone signaling is contributing to the anti-cancer effect in at least some of these preclinical models where ketones influence the uh, immune cell's ability to recognize and then target the cancer cell. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it, it, it does sound fascinating, and it's, and it's <clears throat> a very important topic because then it gets into the, the discussion of, okay, well, a ketogenic diet, a ketogenic lifestyle will affect the glucose and the insulin components yes. of it and give you the ketone bodies to have all these extra effects. But does raising that ketone level with an exogenous ketone, perhaps, yeah. does that provide even greater protection or even greater effect of the ketones by, by raising the level? So when it comes to general health concepts of a ketogenic diet, I, you know, I generally say you don't need to chase ketones because there's a ketone level, a beta-hydroxybutyrate level of three, any better than a level of one when it comes to insulin sensitivity and weight loss. Right. Probably not. Right. But for something like a cancer treatment, does that make a difference? It could. Yeah. It really could. Um, and, but we don't know. But th theoretically, um, I, I like to think that <clears throat> you kind of have to view everything that's happening in the tumor, all of these different mutations, the, the phenotype, the metabolic phenotype it's expressing – each subset is, is more or less important for a particular type of cancer. So one tumor type might be really, really dependent um, and thriving because of this high glucose metabolism. And maybe they have some of these weird epigenetic, uh, you know, uh, suppression going on, but it's not really that important for the success of that tumor, at least at that time. In that state, a ketogenic diet that lowers glucose may be important and the ketone story might not be as important because they're not as dependent on the as the mechanisms that this ketone signaling would target but what about a tumor that is really really benefiting from the um the epigenetic silencing of these tumor suppressor genes and maybe they're actually more oxidative in its uh its capacity than a normal cancer um, well, in that case, maybe the glucose side of the ketones, the ketogenic diet is not as important for that tumor, but the signaling part is really important. So this <laughs> is going to make studying this very difficult because yes. you're going to need different protocols for every different type of cancer. Now, yeah. I want I kind of want to walk through this a little bit more. So when we talk about the ketogenic diet, are we talking about a specific type of ketogenic diet for cancer therapy, like the, the four to one where the, um, four times as much fat as there is protein yep. and carbohydrates combined, which is not probably the average ketogenic diet that most people are eating. So Absolutely. do we have to make that differentiation when we talk about a ketogenic diet for cancer therapy? I think we will. Um, I think that most of the, the research that's going on is looking at those more therapeutic types of ketogenic diets, something more akin to a classical ketogenic diet, like is used in, in epilepsy, something like a four to one. 
Um, and it's interesting in the preclinical literature, you'll even see, so yesterday at MHS, we had a presentation from Dr. Barbara Koffler. She uses an eight to one di- uh, diet wow. in her mice. Yeah, I know it must just be straight oil. Um, and, but this is because mice are a lot more resistant to getting into a state of ketosis than humans. So it's all very complicated, like knowing what to study in the preclinical models, how to put that, translate that into the clinical trials as we're designing them. Um, In my opinion at this point, and I think this is what's been done mostly, um, trying that strict therapeutic level, giving yourself the best shot, giving yourself the best shot to reduce glucose, reduce insulin while also getting ketones higher. That makes sense as a let's get into clinical trials in this way. And then we can tease out, okay, in what situations might just simple low carb versus a ketogenic also be effective? That might be the case. This is what we have seen in epilepsy, right? For the first several decades, it was all this four to one ketogenic diet. And within the past couple of decades, people have started saying, oh, okay, well, a a low glycemic index treatment is actually sufficient for this type of seizure disorder or a modified Atkins or modified ketogenic diet is is sufficient, but we're just not there yet. And modified Atkins is probably, I think, what most people are eating for a ketogenic diet. Absolutely. And you brought up the point about about the mice and how it's hard for them to get into ketosis. So, you know, there was a study published recently um, that said, a ketogenic diet is beneficial for the first week and then after that actually induces diabetes and got all the headlines. <laughs> and well, what did these, it was a mouse study fed a 10% protein diet with hydrogenated soybean oil as, mm-hmm. as the fat. So the type of fat in these, in these mouse studies makes a difference too, because that's not what people are eating. And Absolutely. so the different types of fat may have different types of effects. So that's one of the problems in, in trying to extrapolate mouse data to human data as well. So it is. We clearly need more human data. So when's that coming? <laughs> Hurry up. When's it coming? It's on the way. <laughs> I wish research was faster than it is. Um, yeah. So scientists, there's a lot of inertia uh, in science. Um, yeah. But, you know, even just seeing from, from when um, I started this research about 10 years ago, it was not something, at least in the cancer field, that there were obviously some studies here and there. Um, but it was not something that was being discussed on a main stage. And it was not something that most oncologists had heard of or were open to in any way. Um, <clears throat> we at that time, you know, in those early years would reach out um, to local cancer hospitals and and just try to get perspective or, or, you know, even just like, can we come give a presentation about this, talk about this? Great. And there was a lot of pushback. Fast forward a few years later and we're getting contacted by those oncologists because they want to know, right? right? Things have changed so quickly. So I would say even for, you know, science where things move slowly, this is accelerating very rapidly in part because of conversations like you and I are having right now, um, getting information into people's hands so that they can go back to their oncologists and ask questions. And the oncologists now, you know, realize I need to, I need to learn more about nutrition. It's not something that I covered in, in my training. And so, um, you know, that's why these com- kind of conversations are so important. It's just getting the information out there so we can all move forward together. Yeah, I love to hear that, how it started with you knocking on doors and now people are knocking on your <laughs> yeah. door wanting more information. That, yeah. yeah, that's just fantastic. And so the other thing, though, to get into, we talked about the specific type of ketogenic diets, but also the specific type of cancers. And I think yeah. this is important because from what I understand, renal cell carcinoma, and melanoma are two cancers that really don't respond to ketogenic diet or may even worsen to, with ketones, at least in mice, <laughs> compared to other other um, tumors. Now, is that true and why would there be a difference? In- yeah, uh, possibly, definitely possibly true. I am by no means of the opinion that ketogenic diet is going to be a one-size-fit-all for all types of cancers. Cancer is way too complicated for that. Um, I would say the preclinical data suggests that the majority of cancers seem to have uh, respond favorably to a ketogenic diet. There's a portion that from the preclinical data seems to not really care that much. And then, as you mentioned, there have been a couple of papers here and there that showed in this model, we saw a promotion. A promotion of, of, of the cancer growth. The cancer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> There's a lot going on in my head right now about uh, some of the complicated sides of why that might be. So let's take the melanoma example. <clears throat> that uh, model is a BRAF V600E 
mutated melanoma. So this I'll pretend is pretend I understand that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it is a um, important mutation that is present in a lot of melanoma patients, and it is um, a, a mutation that uh, that affects one of the major signaling pathways in that tumor that really helps it grow and proliferate rapidly. Um, that paper showed that acetoacetate, the elevation of acetoacetate, um, could actually promote the growth of that, that model. Uh, this is interesting because this seems to be a signaling effect of ketones. So that same mechanism, the acetoacetate stimulation of that pathway, is something that's also been reported to happen in skeletal muscle, which is why... Um, skeletal muscle can be preserved in models of skeletal degeneration. Hmm. Okay, so this is a signaling effect, a unique signaling property um, of acetoacetate specifically um, to, that promotes this pathway. This pathway happens to be really important for melanoma that carries that specific mutation. So not so, all melanomas. Um, no, I mean, it might be heightened to some degree, but it, that's a common mutation. And then it, if you had that mutation, then acetoacetate itself might, you know, promote it. Okay, so that's what they saw in that model. We actually just had a speaker yesterday presenting her data looking at other BRAF V600D mutants that she was able to further elevate beta-hydroxybutyrate, and she didn't see that effect So it was specific model. to acetoacetate yeah. and not beta-hydroxybutyrate, yes. which are two different ketone bodies. They are two different ketones. So these are the, like, this is why it's so complicated. These are the, the details we have to work out because it's possible, it's absolutely possible that there's a cancer type that has a mutation and then this signaling effect, if it's there, it's going to drive that tumor to grow. But remember, you're changing tons of things within the tumor. So how important is glucose metabolism in that tumor? Is it as important as that signaling pathway or more important? Mm -hmm. Even then, you might have a net a negative effect on the tumor, depending on the importance of the things that are being targeted. Yeah. So some of this can drive people crazy because <clears throat> yeah. we don't have all the answers. No. We're in the very early stages. Yeah. But if somebody or somebody's loved one has cancer and wants to try this, they want to know that it's, no. they're doing more benefit than any potential Absolutely. harm. And so there still is a bit of a limbo, but yeah. is there any, can you draw any lines to say for these cancers, you know, even though it's not guidelines, even though I can't tell people, you know, individually, yeah. I would say yes, in general, try it for these cancers and for these yeah. cancers, maybe not. Of so, course, in addition to radiation, chemotherapy, yeah, surgery, yeah. whatever the, the uh, mm -hmm. general recommendations are from the Absolutely. cancer doctors. I'm, I'm a very strong uh, proponent of the data supports that this as an adjuvant is most promising. And there's even data that suggests that there's really nice synergy from ketogenic diet with these standard of care therapies. So <clears throat> that's absolutely my position. You know, I so obviously I'm not a medical doctor, I'm a scientist. I can only speak to what the data suggests is um, is happening and what might be most useful versus not. <clears throat> I don't give any medical advice, of course. Um, I would say that there are types of cancers that there have been a lot more data in, which is why they're the furthest along in clinical trials. They have the most clinical trials. A great example would be brain cancer. So um, the most preclinical data for ketogenic diet for cancer comes from brain cancer. Brain cancer, especially GBM, glioblastoma multiform, stage four brain cancer, also, even with standard of care, has a very grim prognosis. Yeah. So in that um, setting, it really is the perfect scenario to test this out. And that's why there have been the most number of trials, right? So there's a lot of preclinical studies, and there's cl some clinical data that shows that this might have a nice effect there. Um, all the other cancer types, <clears throat> it's mostly coming from preclinical data, uh, saying that, you know, we need to test this. Mm -hmm. um, I would say... Uh, the ones you've mentioned, you know, the melanoma story, that's obviously complicated, especially for those BRAF V600D mutant uh, mutated patients. Um, and we need to be more cautious. And, and, and then the renal cell carcinoma, <clears throat> that was interesting because that was <clears throat> a basically a, a large a, a portion of renal cell carcinoma patients 
will present with a perineoplastic syndrome called Stauffer's syndrome that basically causes inflammation in the liver and liver failure. And so the, uh, the, the, the study that showed this might not be a good idea for renal cell carcinoma was not because it was promoting the tumors. The tumors were actually growing more slowly in those mice. The, t- the mice died because they developed this perineoplastic syndrome and caused liver failure. Interesting. So, which also speaks to why this is so complicated and why a patient has to have the oversight of their oncologist and right. their team on board. It's not just what happens with the tumor. You, you, I mean, there's so many other things going on and in the body when a patient has cancer is going through treatment. And we have to, you know, there needs to be a really close eye on all of these other things. Yeah. So, great um, point. Yeah. And then, so the the next step, though, in talking about cancer therapies and nutrition and lifestyle changes is the tolerability of the therapy, yeah. whether it's the tolerability of radiation or chemotherapy. I mean, yeah. and this is where we get into that point of the statement we started this interview with the non-toxic metabolic yeah. targeted therapy. So the, the non-toxic part, because let's face it, chemotherapy is toxic and people can get severe side effects. So yeah. does the ketogenic diet, and then we can also talk about plus minus fasting, yeah. help with those side effects of the chemotherapy? It's possible that it could. So there is some uh, data that suggests, uh, largely preclinical data again, to suggest that um, that some of these things are more well tolerated. Also, it's possible if you're um, if you see if there's some kind of synergistic effect between com- combining these therapies, it's possible that we could actually use lower levels of these drugs that would reduce toxicity. This is all theoretical, of course. At this point, those things would have to be panned out in a clinical trial. Clinical trial. But uh, for a few reasons, we think that, yeah, it might actually, you know, improve other aspects aside from just effect on tumor. We need to be thinking about quality of life. Right. Um, That's really important. And there is human data from small trials showing improved quality of life, better um, emotional functioning scores, better sleeping. People also like, you know, some of the other added benefits of, well, I've lost, you know, I've lost this excess body weight. I'm feeling younger, healthier, more energetic. Um, we think that for those reasons, people might be able to actually tolerate uh, some of the side effects of the standard of care treatment better. And that's, that's, we're starting to see emerging data that, support, that supports that. Yeah, it's a great perspective. We're treating the cancer, yeah. but we're treating the patient too. We're Absolutely. treating the whole person to get yeah. them feeling better and help the body with its own sort of anti-cancer fighting yes. ability perhaps. Support the immune system. Absolutely. Yeah. And so when we talk about the, the ketogenic diet or ketones in general helping with the chemotherapy, one of the things that's gotten a lot of news lately is the, the um, PI3K inhibitor. Yeah, so exactly. Can you, can you give us sort of a basic overview of what a PI3K inhibitor is and what the data has shown with yeah, ketogenic that's, diets? That's yeah, that's a great question. So this is a, a pathway that is, you know, I keep talking about these signaling pathways that are important for cancer cells. So this is one that is heavily oft, often mutated in a lot of cancer types and helps promote the cancer's growth. Um, it's also driven by insulin signaling. So um, it, that, that was a really interesting paper in that basically they showed they had developed these drugs against PI3 kinase inhibitors, or they were PI3 kinase inhibitors to target that pathway, but they weren't actually doing very well. They didn't have great success. Mm. And what they found out was basically they, um, the, the tumor was reactivating essentially insulin signaling around it, um, just as like to bypass the inhibitor. And so what they found was it can do that. The tumor can reactivate the insulin insulin to like circumvent that drug in the context of a standard high carbohydrate diet. But if you put a ketogenic diet on top of it, it's not able to mount the insulin response that compensates and overcomes that drug's effect. And so the background diet made all the you know difference in whether or not this drug actually worked. So that was such a great paper, um, of course it was done by incredible researchers that are just at the top of the field um, and published in a very you know, high uh, impact um, scientific journal, um, but that showed unequivocally diet matters, not just from its own impact on cancer, but it actually impacts our ability, the chemotherapy drugs that are being used um, and their ability to do their job as well, which is pretty cool. 
right? Yeah, I think that's so important. Now, we're talking a lot about treating cancer. And cancer, like we said in the beginning, comes from stage one to stage four. So stage one localized, stage four metastatic, and different versions in between. Do you think this tool of a ketogenic diet or even exogenous ketones can be used across the spectrum? Um, Or do you think it's going to be much more effective in stage four in the metastatic disease and less so in the early on, because like you were saying, yeah. when it's metastatic, it's growing faster, it's, ha- it's more glycolytic, that's where you can sort of impact it mm-hmm. more, or can it still be effective sort of in the early stages of cancer? Yeah, I would love to say there's data on that. There's not, but I can theorize what I would predict to be true, um, which is kind of interesting because I could make strong arguments for either okay. being the case. The, the tumors are more glycolytic, more dependent on those glucose pathways. The more aggressive they become, the more late stage. But in almost all cases, prognosis is going to be worse the further a cancer gets overall. And usually by this time, the tumor is really resistant to a lot of therapies. So even though maybe an intervention of ketosis at that point could impact on its own stronger... Um, you don't have as many options. So um, I, with cancer and just how aggressive and smart it is, I'm a big, big proponent of as early as you can get it and as early as you can uh, start fighting it, the better. Um, But there are reasons why it could potentially, you know, potentially be applied across the board, but that's something we have to tease out for sure. What about prevention? I'm sure most people listening to this, don't have cancer, but you know the statistics are that half of all men and a third of all women are going to get yeah. cancer at some point in their lives, and a quarter of all men and a fifth of all women are going to die of cancer. So even the people who aren't personally touched by cancer yet, in the back of their brain, they're probably thinking, can this be a prevention strategy? And of course, we don't have the data, yeah. but is there enough theory, um, from, theoretical reasons to say, yes, sure. it could be? I mean, from a, from a um, a theoretical, you know, approach, it makes sense that it would. You are influencing pathways that we know promote tumor growth. There's also data that suggests consuming a high glycemic diet, high glycemic load diet increases your risk of developing many cancer types. So just first of all, not eating, you know, at least a high glycemic load diet um, should, you know, theoretically that data suggests that it would Uh, lower that risk at least, or maybe neutralize that increased risk. Um, It also, you know, just things that it targets things that we know increase your risk of cancer, obesity, strong link between diabetes and cancer. So you're lowering your glucose, you know, for the most part, you're seeing lower A1C, you know, all of these things are, are independent, uh, you know, risks for developing cancer. So it makes sense. We don't really have data because it's hard to do that kind of trial. What you're talking about is, you know, decades long data following people eating a a certain, you know, way and and do do they have lower cancer risk? So um, now the flip side of that coin, though, is that um, ketogenic diets that are considered, you know, relatively high in animal proteins, even though you can argue if it's high or not, stimulates mTOR. mTOR is thought to promote growth in cancer cells as well as normal cells. So and we have no idea what that means clinically, right? It's yeah. more of a, a, a scientific finding at this point. Does that play into your decision at all? Um, somewhat. So, you know, there have there has been some um, in mice, so take it for what it's worth. Right. <laughs> uh, there was uh, data looking at ketogenic diet over the lifetime of a mouse uh, and then also cyclic ketogenic diet. And these mice had less tumors than their aged counterparts. So... Theoretically, you're getting the enhanced mTOR signaling, um, uh, but you know it's it's not. I don't know. It, it's it's so hard to say. I would say overall, when we look at all of these independent um, changes that are occurring, the bulk of them seem to be moving in a, in a good direction that that suggests a lower cancer risk. Yeah. Okay, that makes yeah. sense. Now, let me ask you another opinion question. I, you know, scientists get sure. squirmy on opinion questions, right? <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> there's no doubt. But do you, do you think um, that maybe some, do you think maybe we're, we can be hurting our mission more than we're helping it if the message out there is that ketogenic diets cure cancer? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's a very irresponsible way to talk about it. Um, it's a conversation that really requires nuance 
and buzz, you know, buzz lines like that just don't provide that context. The data also does not suggest that. I mean, even in the most successful preclinical studies showing a nice impact, the mice were not cured almost ever. There was one study in, um, uh, Adrian Sheck performed a study in a brain cancer model and the ketogenic diet on its own prolonged survival, radiation on its own prolonged survival. In that model, when she combined radiation and ketogenic diet, she saw complete remission, sustained complete remission for like a year, which is a long time for a mouse. They only live about two years. Yeah. Um, in those animals, uh, in like 80% of those animals that got the combination therapy. That's the closest I've ever seen to a cure. But again, it wasn't just the ketogenic diet, and it was in a brain cancer mouse model, right? Right. So saying (laughs) the ketogenic diet cures cancer is irresponsible. It's not reflective of the data. It is inhibiting us on so many levels because you... It instantly puts up the defenses of any oncologist that right. we need on our side. And you don't want to you know, turn on inappropriate um, defenses against that because people are making claims that aren't backed up. Right. So instead, the message of it could be beneficial as an adjunctive therapy to help traditional therapies to help reduce the side effects and the efficacy of therapies. So maybe yeah. it's worth giving it a try. Yeah. Which is not as, as exciting it's not of a as message. Sexy. No, yeah. it's not. But, you know, it's the truth. So. Right. <laughs> and I think that's important. Sticking to, you know, having the, the strength of the recommendation match the strength yes. of the science, um, yes. which right now the strength of the science is not strong, but this yeah. is a a clinical situation where people are desperate for answers. They're desperate for something better. It's one of the sort of the scariest diagnoses you can have. Even though more people die of heart disease, I think the diagnosis of heart disease is much less scary than the diagnosis yeah. of cancer because there's it less of- so imminent. Yeah, and yeah. it's sort of less of the unknown. Yes. And so people are grasping at straws and so they want to latch onto anything that can help. And this is one thing that could potentially help. Yeah. So um, if one, if people want to learn more about your research and what you're yeah. doing and what's coming next, how can you direct them? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I have a scientist page on Facebook that I'll, I share a lot of research on, um, just Angela Poff, PhD, on Facebook. Um, Metabolic Health Summit, this is uh, a platform that um, myself, uh, Dr. D- Dominic D'Agostino and Victoria Field were the three organizers of the event. But we, it's not just a one-weekend event a year. We put out information throughout the whole year. So we're on all the, the social platforms, and then our website is metabolichealthsummit.com. Um, and so we, we're constantly putting out more information. And so I can be contacted there, or um, you can find out more about what we're doing through those resources. Great. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time, especially since you're so busy organizing this <laughs> event, which I have to say has been a wonderful event. And I'm really enjoying it. And the quality of the speakers and the engagement of the audience has been phenomenal. So thank you. thank you for that. And thank you for all the research you're doing. I'm really excited to see more coming out of your lab. Absolutely. Thank you.